Hi, guys. It's great to share in worship. It's great to share in the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Isn't it? Okay. <laughs> I'd like for you guys to be awake at the beginning of the sermon, at least. Give me a chance. You know, um, for preachers, there's, uh, there's kind of two common ways we can go about uh, creating our sermons and preaching. Uh, one is what I call preaching for amens. And when you're preaching for amens, what you want to do is figure out who your crowd is, figure out what they believe, figure out what they like to hear, and tell them what they like to hear. And there's nothing quite like being preaching to a large crowd and people keep shouting out, amen, amen, amen. You feel like a rock star. It's great. But there's a problem with that. When all you do is tell people what they want to hear and all you do is focus your attention on the things that you hope they want you to say, then they may thoroughly enjoy the process and leave here the same as they walked in. So you have a choice. You can either preach for amens or you could preach for changed lives. And I decided a long time ago that I'm gonna preach for changed lives. <laughs> so if you keep the amens coming, I'll keep preaching for changed lives. <clears throat> so, so here's the thing, sometimes you know, when, we're, when I'm preaching from the Word, I, I, I'm, I have a hard time building a bridge between the truth that is being shared from Scripture and everybody's everyday life when they leave this room. And, it, and it, it gets difficult sometimes to hear a sermon and go, yes, I, I, I nodded my head, I said amen, I agree with everything that was said, but I have no idea how to change my life based on that. I don't know what difference it makes. It's a, sort of a, a so what kind of a thing. Or <clears throat> I think a lot of times we hear a message or even read the scripture and we come away going, yes, but how? Not sure exactly what to do with all of that. <clears throat> and so these last several weeks, I've been preaching a series of messages about the church. We talked about uh, sort of the church in general. What does the Bible teach about the church? What is the church? What does it mean to be healthy as the church? And then we turned the corner into this series called The Motto, in which we're talking specifically about this local church and what God has called us to be all about, and sort of boiling it down to these three pillars in our motto which are love God, loving people, changing the world. Good, you guys are very, very sharp. So I thought, you know what? Everybody maybe by the end of this can walk out of here and go, yep, I know the motto. I know what the church is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be loving God. We're supposed to be loving people. We're supposed to be changing the world. Yes, but how? How? And so what I had intended was a three-week series on the motto, and this is week four of that three-week series. Don't worry, I'm not charging you extra for this. This is all included. 
but I thought it would be good for us to actually get a little bit practical and go, we've been grappling with these big principles now for a while. How do we get practical and go, what does it look like to love God? What does it look like to love people? What does it look like to change the world? And so that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to kind of look at those three things and say, okay, let's talk about this practically. And we're going to start with the loving God portion of our motto. What does it look like to love God? What is involved? And obviously, I could preach for hours and hours and hours and not cover everything that is involved in worship, not everything that is involved in loving God. But I thought we should start with worship. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to Psalm 95. Just kind of open your Bible right to the center. You'll probably land in the book of Psalms. And then go to Psalm 95. And I want us to just look together at some verses. And we're going to be using our Bibles quite a bit for the next 20 minutes or so. And uh, we're going to be digging through, but we're not going to be diving deep. I just want to give you some pictures of what God is talking about in Scripture when he talks about worship. So we're going to be in Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1. And here's what it says. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. This is a psalm that is known as a call to worship. This is like, hey, everybody just got here on a Sunday morning. What are we going to do? Let's all come together and sing praise to God. Let's all shout joyfully to the Lord. We have come together for this purpose. Verse um, 3, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for it was he who made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now, that's a fairly well-known psalm, and there have been numerous uh, songs adapted from this original song, but I want us to actually notice something that you may have never noticed before in this call to worship psalm, and it's the word us, or its counterpart, we. Again, verse one, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. We skip down to verse six. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Do you notice that that's a corporate thing? It's really important for us to recognize this. It is is bound up within God's design of human beings that we would not only be in relationship with one another, but that collectively we would be in relationship with him. 
And this is not something we talk about very much in the modern American church because the pendulum has been swung way too far in the past in other contexts where people think it's all about just going to the church building, being with the church people and all that kind of stuff. And we forget that Jesus saved me as an individual and that he wants to have a personal relationship with me. So we concentrate and focus on this discussion of me and God, me and God, me and God. But I want us to begin thinking about this love God thing and realizing that part of this calling is a corporate calling. Our worship life is meant to be corporate. It's a we thing. But let's keep going because loving God isn't just about uh, corporate worship. It's not just about gathering together to praise him, but it's also about the me thing. So on the one hand, it's a we thing. On the other hand, it's a me thing. And if we look at Philippians chapter three, go in your New Testament to the book of Philippians. We're gonna be bouncing around here, so get your fingers ready to turn pages. I know you don't have pages anymore. You just have digital whatever. But get your fingers ready for that too. Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse seven. Paul has just been describing his life as a Pharisee and all of that, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, and then he gets into this in verse seven, and he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I am suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain Uh, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he goes on and keeps talking about this. Guys, he says, everything else that was important to me now becomes rubbish by comparison to the one thing that my pursuit is in life, and that is to know him, that I may be in relationship with God. And one of the things we have to understand is that When God sent his son into the world, he did not just send Jesus to save us from eternity in hell, although I'm glad he did, amen? Amen. Good, another amen, I like that. Um, he, He didn't just send his son to save us from the punishment of our sin, but the scripture teaches over and over and over that he saved us to redeem us to purchase us, to buy our pardon so we can live in relationship with him. It's a relationship thing. And so when I think about loving God, I shouldn't get caught up in just that, oh, there's these warm feelings I have about God, or I know some theological truth about God, or I I kind of like the way I feel when I go to church and we all sing together about God. It's, It's not as simple as that, it's personal. And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, if you flip back to Matthew chapter six, we'll see this. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew five through seven, Jesus talks about this at length. But one of the ways he talks about it is found in verse five. Matthew chapter six and verse five. Um, Here's what he says. When you pray, 
You're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret or in private, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, in a, in, for a second, this seems a little contradictory. Weren't you just saying, Pastor, that this is a we thing? Weren't you just saying we're supposed to come and sing and praise and worship and pray together? And now he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand up in the gathering of the people and pray. Listen, there's nothing wrong with praying among other people. It's what comes after that where he says, in order to be seen by men. When your prayer is something that is not actually prayer, but is rather a show for the sake of other people to think more highly of you, then you have completely missed the point of why Jesus came and died on the cross. He came and died on the cross that you and I might have a personal relationship with him that lasts forever. And so he invites us to pray and he says, and you know what? Quite the opposite of praying for people to see you, go where nobody can see you. And there should be a secret prayer place for you. And it doesn't have to be a physical location that you set aside and go, this is where I pray where nobody can see me. But it's this idea that I meet with God one-on-one alone. Guys, one of the most beautiful things about what Jesus has done for us is that he has become our high priest. So it is not necessary for us to have some go-between in order for us to get to God because Jesus makes the way for us to get to God. And because Jesus has made a way for us to get to God, we don't have to go to a public gathering. We don't have to get some preacher to to, uh, help us with this. We don't have to do anything like that. Instead, we just stop where we are and pray. We can just meet with God where we are. It is a personal relationship. So on the one hand, if we're going to do the loving God thing well, it has to be a we thing. And I, and I really want to stress that because in this day and age, it has become more and more common for people to go, you know, the whole gathering together thing is overrated. It's not that important. And the scripture says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. And it talks about the value of that. But it also tells us that Jesus died so he could have a relationship with me. Jesus died so he could have a relationship with you. It's a me thing. So on the one hand, it's a we thing. On the other hand, it's a me thing. But when you break it all the way down, it's a he thing. So, so I want to give you this sort of the third idea. We, we talked about the idea of worship, corporate worship. We talked about the idea of a private relationship in loving God. But actually, the key to the whole thing is submission to him. The Bible uses lots of different titles for God, lots of them. It's amazing how many of them imply that he's in charge. He's God, he's Father, he's Lord, he's king, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And we have to realize that when we do enter into this personal relationship with God, that we are entering into a relationship with the king of kings and lord of lords. That passage we read in Psalm 95 says, you know, the oceans are his. You know why? He made them. 
God spoke everything into existence. He rules over everything. He cannot be thwarted. There is no one who has authority over him. So this idea that I'm gonna run my own life and then stop and say hi to God once in a while does not work. That is not the biblical picture of loving God. Loving God involves the fact that that because he is my Lord, because he is my king, I will line up my life under his authority. And that's why if you go to John chapter 14, so if you're in Matthew, just uh, two, three books to the right, go to the book of John and go to chapter 14. These are some of Jesus' last words to his uh, disciples, these last chapters here. But we're gonna pick it up in John 14, verse 15. Here's what Jesus says. If you love me, this is a whole thing about loving God, right? So this should be good for us. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give to you another helper that he may be with you forever. So the Holy Spirit, the helper that God sends comes to help us walk in submission to the Father's will. Skip down to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So I think that a cynical world has seen just about enough of Christians who talk about God and talk about doctrine and don't let him be Lord of their lives. That is the number one uh, objection that I run into. People don't get caught up in six days of creation. People don't get caught up in whether or not uh, the Red Sea actually parted. People are not really so concerned with whatever happened to the dinosaurs and why doesn't the Bible mention them. You know what people say? I've just known too many Christians. Guys, Jesus made it very, very clear. If we love him, we will keep his word. And I could give you 10 other passages where he says the same thing in roughly the same words. If we love him, we submit to him. So if, if you want to get practical, and, and, and this is where uh, it's very hard for me to take it any further than this because I don't know what specifically this needs to look like in your life. But in your life, if you want to do the loving God thing with sincerity, then you're going to have to make your life built around your relationship with Christ. There's going to need to be worship, both private and corporate. There's going to need to be a personal relationship with Jesus that isn't just theoretical. It's not just what church did I join or when did I get baptized or what kind of family was I raised in. It's about me and Jesus having a personal relationship. And if you're going to have that kind of relationship, a relationship of love with God, he says, if you love me, you will do what I say. We actually have to start applying the truth of his word to our lives. So that's a few little things for loving God. Let's move on to loving people. Loving God, loving people, changing the world. What are we talking about when we talk about loving people? And we've already covered this to some extent, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but let me just remind you that based on what Jesus tells us and what the word of God says, if you love him, you must love people. When they came to Jesus says, what's the one commandment? He goes, I can't do that, I'm gonna give you two. Love God and love people. 
because you can't love God without loving people. And you're not gonna actually truly love people unless you have that right relationship with God so his love can pour through you. Love God and love people. It's the natural result of a relationship with God. Again, we're gonna hit a bunch of verses and most of them are in either 1 John or John because John's the one who likes to write about this. Go to the back of your Bible to the book of 1 John. It's not the big book of John, but it is the epistle, 1 John. And we're gonna look again at the passage that we looked at extensively, which is 1 John chapter four, beginning in verse seven, where John says this, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You know what that means? That means without that relationship with God, it's impossible to actually love. So we end up having to redefine the word love. And so in our society, we define the word love in all kinds of ways except the way that the scripture defines it. And God says, if you're gonna actually love people the way I call you to love people, you have to be in right relationship with me. So if you, uh, if you want to love one another, you have to know God. And if you do not know God, you will not succeed at loving one another. By this, the love of God was manifested, verse nine in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We are called to love one another. Now, Jesus talked about this directly in John chapter 15. So go back to the gospel of John now, where we were earlier. And I want us to see this together in John chapter 15. Uh, And we're not gonna go ahead and read these verses in John 15, but instead, I want you to mark it because this is your homework assignment. This is where you're gonna be in your quiet times this week as you meet together with God and build that relationship. John chapter 15, if you're not already working through some specific study, I encourage you to get into John 15, but I'm gonna summarize it for you here in just a second. Here's what he says. This is the passage where Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches, right? You remember that? He says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you're gonna bear fruit, it has to be because you stay connected to the vine. And he spends the first many verses of John 15 talking about what it means to be connected to him. And then he takes the rest of the chapter and talks about what it means to be connected to other people. That we don't just love him, we don't just abide in him, but that we love other people. And turn the page back to the left to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, now we've been in 13, 14, and 15. In John chapter 13, here's what he says in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also ought to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the mark of the Christian. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Love for God leads to love for people. And I wanna give you one last passage and this is in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Proverbs. Go to Proverbs chapter 17. And while you're turning there, this gives me a perfect opportunity to to, uh, have a commercial right here in the middle of my sermon. 
starting next week, we're going to be starting a new sermon series called Wise Up. And it's going to be a million weeks on what does it mean to live our lives according to biblical wisdom. So we're going to get into that, taking our life to the next level because of the wisdom of God in our lives. Well, we find some of that wisdom here in Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapter 17, here's what it says. Just this little verse, just right in the middle, it says this. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. It's kind of surprising how much the book of Proverbs has to say about the value of friendship. Friendship is part of how God designed us to succeed. We succeed in, in deep relationships with one another. And here's the thing, and, and I'm tempted to just go off on a tangent, but I'm not going to do that. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's the thing. As Christians, too many of us are comfortable with friendliness instead of friendship. We've learned to value friendliness and we've stopped pouring ourselves into friendship. So friendliness is, I'm always nice to you. Friendliness is, you show up on a Sunday morning, you come walking in from the parking lot, and I come up to you and say, good morning, how was your week? And you say, fine, how was yours? And I go, great, and we're both lying, and then you go and sit down. (laughs) And it's very easy for us to be friendly individuals without being friends. It's also very easy for us to be a friendly congregation without building friendships. Guys, it's not just a matter of whether we are polite to one another. It's not just a matter of whether we are kind to one another. It's a matter of whether we weave our lives together with one another. If you want to get practical on this loving people thing, start by intentionally building friendships. What does it mean to build a friendship? Well, in part, it means to be there when somebody is hurting, when there's nothing for you to gain from them, only something for you to give to them. It means that you actually think of someone when they're not in your presence. It means that you find the things that you have in common and you bond together over them. It means that you have each other's back. It means that you pray for each other. It means that you're, you're growing in your understanding of who this person is and what their needs are and what makes them tick and how God has designed them. And this, by the way, is why we've created our grace group structure and our system in this church of grace groups. Because when you get into a smaller group of people, you have the opportunity to actually get to know someone and build an actual friendship. And here's the thing. I said I wasn't going on a tangent. You knew I was lying when I said that, right? <laughs> here's the thing. You may not feel the need for that friendship today, but the need is coming. And when the need comes, it's too late to build the friendship. We need to be people who build friendships as a matter of course. And we need to be people who take our friendships beyond the surface and actually get into one another's hearts and one another's lives. So that's my tangent on friendship. It's not enough for us to be friendly. We need to actually be friends. So if you're going to love people, you're going to need to abide in God. And then as a result, you will love people. 
Love for God leads to love for people. True friendship is defined by love. Loving people can start with friendship. Now, does it go beyond there? Of course it does. Does it go to strangers? Yes, it does. But those are the easy examples to come up with. Hey, do you carry some water in your car so when you see a homeless person on a hot day, you can give them some water? That's a wonderful thing, and I encourage you to be doing that kind of stuff all the time. Should you be investing in overseas missions to people that you've never seen before, but you know that they're in need of Jesus, and they're in need of health care, and they're in need of comfort, and all that kind of stuff? Yes, you better be absolutely invested in those kind of things. Do you know any missionaries that are in the field? If you don't, you need to meet some, and they need to become a regular part of your prayer life and a regular part of your relationships because the work of God is not just happening in Duarte and it's not just happening in this building, but God is doing his thing everywhere and we need to build relationships so that we can all be a part of that together. And oh my gosh, the tangent continues. So here's the thing. Um, it is so easy for us and, and, and we're going to talk about this at great length in the, in the months ahead. It's so easy for us as Christians at Grace Fellowship that, that we participate in the offering. You know, you guys see that, the video every time. We don't pass the, the buckets anymore. God forbid somebody would get a germ from somebody else passing a bucket. So we don't do that anymore. Um, but it's so easy to just tell your bank account, hey, give X amount of dollars every month and, and we support missionaries. Guys, that's not what it is to be involved in missions. Missions is not just that we send people out somewhere and we pay their bills. Missions is something we all do together, those who stay and those who go. That happens by building relationships. We need to keep doing that. Okay, sorry the tangent wasn't in my notes and now you guys are gonna have to wait longer before you can leave. Here's the thing, last thing, changing the world. Here's a piece of advice you didn't expect me to give you. Don't set out to do great things. God is not sitting around wringing his hands waiting for someone like you who has immense power and immense resources to go and fix the stuff that God can't fix. God is not expecting us to do the stuff that only God can do. So don't, when you think changing the world, stop thinking about, I've got to do something great. I've got to invent something great. I have to go somewhere and do something. I have to make, have my name in lights. I've got to do something great. That's not how we change the world. Listen, I said this last week, you ain't never going to change the world. But God is already changing the world. So we've got to get out of this idea where I'm going to do great things and I've got to remember only God can do great things. So I'm going to join him in what he is already doing. God called or invited Abraham. Remember, he's in a pagan land and God said, hey, come with me and I'm going to take you to a place that I will show you. And he gave him a promise. And he said, as you walk with me, you'll be walking in that promise. That was God inviting Abraham, who had nothing to offer God, into that relationship where God would do great things. And what did God do? He created a nation through which came the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
God called Moses a burning bush and Moses turned aside to see why the bush was still burning and God spoke to him from the bush and God called him into joining him in something he was already doing, setting the people free from Egypt. Don't ever get the idea that somehow Moses delivered the people out of slavery. Moses simply showed up and watched God do what God was doing. God is doing great things. Jesus called his disciples. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's in the context of that relationship that God changes our lives. And he is calling or inviting you and me to join him as well. And don't think he's not. He invites us to know him. He invites us to love him. He invites us to follow him as he spreads his love to other people, as he changes the world. It is not about you, it is not about me, it's about him. Joseph, in the Old Testament, changed the world. How did he do it? He remained faithful to God no matter what happened in his circumstances, and then wherever God was, he was allowed to use Joseph there, and through Joseph, God changed the world. Isaiah changed the world. How did that happen? Well, if you were reading in Isaiah 6, you see this worship and prayer time. It's just Isaiah praying and worshiping God, and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And there were angels singing on each side of him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then I heard the voice of the Lord say, who shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. And God cleansed his life and sent him. And in that sending, God changed the world through Isaiah. The apostle Paul changed the world. As Saul of Tarsus, he thought he was serving God by persecuting the church of Christ. But one day on the road to Damascus, as you probably know, God knocked him off his high horse, amen? And in that process, he changed him from being Saul, the great and mighty one who was gonna do things for God, to being Paul, the apostle, who was gonna submit his life to God, suffer for God in ways no one could ever imagine and be used by God to change the world. But it's not just in the Bible. Corrie Ten Boom changed the world. How did she do it? She loved Jesus during the Nazi occupation. So much that she was going to love Jews. And they hid Jews in their house and they got caught uh, taking care of Jews. And therefore, as the Jews were taken to the concentration camp, so were she and her family. And she and her sister ended up in a hellhole called Ravensbrück Concentration Camp. And there in Ravensbrück, they suffered indignities beyond human imagination, suffering and torture beyond human imagination. And in that process of their suffering, they shared the love of Jesus Christ with countless Jewish women who came to know Christ right before they went to the gas chambers. And those women are in heaven today because in the middle of a concentration camp, Betsy and Corey Tenboom were willing to say, yes, Lord, I belong to you here. Change the world through me. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot changed the world. How'd they do it? 
They just offered themselves to God. They said, anywhere, anyone, anytime, any place, just send us, Lord. We'll serve you by loving people. And so God invited them to take the gospel to an unreached people group um, called the Horani tribe of Aka Indians in Ecuador. And, and they did all of the preparation, did everything they could do, and then Jim Elliott and his four other men landed their little plane on the river banks right there by where the tribe was, and they got out to greet the people with the love of Jesus, and the people slaughtered them there on the beach, and all five of them lay dead in a pool of blood on the first day that they tried to make contact. So what did their wives do? Their wives went to the same tribe of people, talked to them about their forgiveness for killing their husbands, compared that to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, shared the gospel with them, moved in among them, lived with them, and brought the gospel to that whole region of the world. See, there are so many ways that God can change the world. i give you one more. Edward Kimball changed the world. Who? Have you noticed these names are becoming less and less well-known? Edward Kimball was a youth worker in a little church. He was a Sunday school teacher back in the days when Sunday school was the coolest thing going. And he had a heart for young men, and he had some young men in his class, and there was one guy named Dwight who came to his class who wasn't interested He was there because he worked for his uncle. And his uncle said, if you're going to stay employed, you have to be in Sunday school every week. So his uncle made him go. So kicking and screaming, he dragged his lazy, tired bones into church every Sunday morning and sat and did not listen and did not care and did not have any interest in what was happening. But Edward Kimball kept praying for him. And one day he went to that shoe store where Dwight worked and he found him in the stock room and he began to talk to him about the gospel and explain the love of Jesus to him. And in that stock room on that day, D.L. Moody knelt and accepted Jesus Christ. And Moody became one of the greatest, most prolific evangelists of the 19th century. And God used him in ways that are still amazing and shocking and we're only gonna find out when we get to heaven. One of the people that met Christ under the ministry of D.L. Moody was a guy named Wilbur Chapman. And Wilbur Chapman also gave his life to Christ and also became an evangelist. And in one of his evangelistic meetings, nothing as big as Moody, certainly, but in one of his evangelistic meetings, there was a young man, a baseball player, a professional baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday showed up at that meeting as lost as he could possibly be and he heard the gospel for the first time from Wilbur Chapman and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. He walked away from baseball and became a full-time evangelist traveling the world telling people about the love of Jesus. And Billy Sunday was preaching one day and a young guy named Mordecai Ham walked into his meeting and Mordecai Ham gave his life to Christ that day and Mordecai Ham became an evangelist. And he would go around and travel around, mostly around the south in these tent meetings and he would have these evangelistic tent meetings in the summer. And one summer there was a young guy named Billy who walked into his tent meeting and Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus that day. And the, and the estimate today is that Billy Graham, who all of you know, spoke personally the gospel message out of his own lips 
to an estimate of 2.2 billion people in his adult life. Edward Kimball changed the world. He went to a shoe store and shared the love of Jesus with a kid who didn't want to hear it. You guys, here's the thing. God's not looking for someone to change the world. He's already changing the world. He's looking for someone who will love him and love people so much that whatever the cost to join him, we will line up with him and he can use us to do what he's already doing. If you've experienced the love of God, that chain of events has already begun in your life. Draw near to God, the scripture says, and he will draw near to you. Give him your life and he will invite you into his world-changing activity. How do you change the world? Loving God and loving people. But you have to actually do it. So now you've heard it. What are you going to do about it? Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we want to give you all honor, all glory, and all praise. We recognize as we think about these many people that you use, people, many of whom are heroes to us, other people whose names we've never heard before today, but every one of them used by you to be a world changer. Why? Because you loved them first, and because that love that you placed on them was reciprocated as you taught them to love you, and then through them, you loved people, and through that, you changed the world. Lord, there's not a person in this room who cannot be used in the same way. And so God, help us as individuals, help us as a church family to surrender to you completely that through us, you might change the world. We love you, God. Help us to love others and change the world through us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord.